You're listening to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Abide Women's Health Services. First, we meet up with Cecily Smith outside of Abide Women's Health Services in Dallas to discuss her organization and the work that she is doing. Cecily Smith is a writer, speaker, and activist whose mission is to relentlessly pursue God and the people he loves. She is the founder and the executive director of Abide Women's Health Services. Abide exists to improve birth outcomes in communities with the lowest quality of care by offering health care and complementary services that are easily accessible, holistic, evidence-based, and free from judgment. We're excited to share with you Abide and the work that Cecily's doing, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. So we are here with my sis, Cecily Smith. Hey, sis. Hey, sis. <laughs> I'm so, it, first of all, it's so good to see you. It's Man. wonderful to see you, sis. Man, I mean, you know, COVID and all the things that have kept us apart for a minute now. And um, I just want to talk about this great work that you're doing and you and your passion, what led to this. Um, I, I, I always just kind of start off before I do like this in- introduction. I want to just start off the interview the way I always do and I want you to tell your story and tell us who is Cecily Smith oh who is she (laughs) (laughs) wow well I think I've been I don't know I think I've been on this journey of figuring out who I am for the past several years now and I'm liking what I see (laughs) um I'm a wife I'm a mother um I'm a black woman yeah. who's passionate about life. Yeah. Um, I'm an empath. Yeah. That can be a blessing and a curse, I think, at times. Yeah. Um, I feel deeply, and I want, um, I want to see communities healed. Yeah. I'm an advocate for black women yes. and our families. Yeah. That's who I am. Yeah. And so I want to talk about little Mr. Eli a little bit too because I feel like just the story of his birthing and how you um, brought us in kind of sets the stage for what you do um, and paints a really beautiful picture. So Cecily has a Women's Health Pregnancy Resource Center here in the heart of Dallas. Sunny South D. Sunny South D on MLK. I'm good on any MLK Boulevard. Yeah. (laughs) We good. Yeah, she's out here um, in the neighborhood, in the community, and she's serving um, underserved women with pregnancy, birth, um, mother, prenatal, like all the resources for black women and children. And I met you... A few years ago at an event 
um, She Laments, where we came together to kind of uh, lament injustice and create a safe space for for women yes. to lament injustice and specifically the injustice of sexual abuse and assault. And I met you and you're, you know, I'm just gonna add worshiper because as I was singing and leading, you were just in front with your hands raised and you were just worshiping the Lord. And it just blessed me tremendously. And then I think our next big encounter where I just kind of like, cause we, we've seen each other and we've been in the same circles, mm -hmm. but that was a big moment for me as, as far as like, you know, entering into the world of Cecily. But then also um, when we had uh, the Sunday dinner. Yes. Um, in, in response to some things that occurred in Dallas that impacted black women in a major way. Yes. And you were pregnant with Eli. Yes. And it was just a very powerful moment where black women came together to weep and to share. And your presence was just this big like reminder of black womanhood, pregnancy, and just this country sorted history. Um, and then I would think the next most significant moment was when you invited me into the birth of your son. Mm. And it was a natural birth and many of us got to watch online and um, just kind of chime in on Marco Polo. We were on Marco <laughs> Polo. And I remember being so, so moved and um, brought to tears because watching you give birth to Eli and how you invited so many black women um, to partake in that experience, it was like, it dawned on me that, it just hit me like black women have not historically been able to command our birth experience. You know, when I think about black women having babies on the run, having babies and having returned to the cotton fields, being enslaved, having babies stripped from their arms, having babies that they can't provide for because they're underpaid. Um, just, and you in that moment gave so much power to black motherhood and in, in the fact that you got to command how Eli would enter into the world. And he entered into the world in such a beautiful way that is not given, like it wasn't given to me like in having my oldest son, how that was taken from me. I mean, we talk a little bit in the episode. Excuse but, me, sorry about that. No, you're fine, you're fine. But you invited us into this experience that I feel is like the pinnacle of what abide is. And it just kind of gave me a vision into your heart for black women that you want to bestow this like dignity to all black women. So tell us about that experience and Abide. So we're finally getting to, <laughs> we, we've heard a little about who she is, but we're gonna finally get to who's, what she does. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why I invited you, yeah. Katina, and so many black women into my birthing experience with Eli was because of so much racial trauma that I experienced that year. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, you see, a lot of times black women get involved in birth work because of trauma. Yeah. Well, that wasn't my experience. Right. Okay. I had wonderful births. Yeah. But for the first time during my fourth pregnancy, 
I was experiencing racial trauma yeah. and I was afraid for the first time to give birth. Yeah. And I knew that in order for me to um, have security, in order for me to experience healing, I needed to be surrounded by the energy, the spirit of black women. Yeah. Yeah. And it was by far the best, most healing birth yeah. that I've ever experienced. And it was because of that birth I believe it's what catapulted the organization that I lead, Abide, into the direction that it is now yeah. because I experienced healing. Yeah. And so Abide Women's Health Services is a maternal justice organization located right here in sunny South D, right on MLK, um, that exists to improve birth outcomes in communities with the lowest quality of care. And when I say that, birth, you know, Abide was birthed from this, um, it was birthed from this knowledge of knowing that black women die at three to four times the rate of white women yeah. in childbirth and yeah. shortly thereafter. Yeah. And black babies are dying at two to three times the rate of white babies before they reach their first birthday. Yeah. And you know, for the longest time I didn't re realize this, I didn't know it, but when those statistics hit me, it changed the trajectory of how I advocated for women and how I advocated specifically for black women. And so that's how Abide was birthed. It was digging into the stats, digging into the reasons why, understanding systemic racism and how black women's bodies have um, never been our own. Yeah. And realizing that we needed a clinic that centered yeah. the lives of black, indigenous, and people of color. Yeah. Absolutely. And so that is kind of, that's you know, it. That, that's, that's it. That's what yeah. we're doing. You and know? So I want to, like, go into the center. You can show us around. Um, we're kind of standing out here on the street. Yeah. It was, I, I just felt like it's important for us to kind of speak in this space that you exist and you do your work every day mm -hmm. in the noise and in the, you know, just people doing their yard and people cutting hair and you listening know, to music doing uh, community <laughs> development and income tax and listening to music and so I just felt like it was important for us to be out here but let's go inside and then you can show us around and we can talk some more is that cool? absolutely that sounds great all right thank you for showing us around the facility is so beautiful you have all this beautiful artwork um that that's reflecting black motherhood, black womanhood. The prenatal room is beautiful. Um, Thank you. I just wish that there were more of what, like like so many more um, abide um, women. What's the, what's the official name again? Abide Women's Health Services. Yeah, I wish there were more of these just around the country. And I'm just so grateful for a generation of women that have this passion to go back and to serve our communities in this way because so often black women get forgotten. Absolutely. I want to know like when you come through these stories, well, one, let's let's go back. First, I want to know how the story of how this came to be and because I know it came with hurdles and challenges and some of it I've kind of followed, you know, you and you shared but I want you to talk about as a black woman who is trying to create something so beautiful and so powerful, some of the obstacles that you've had to deal with um, 
in a in a in a culture that says you know that continues to throw black the black uh, abortion rate in our faces and how there aren't they aren't as welcoming to create a resource that allows us to combat that. Ah, <laughs> uh, wow. Where do I begin? Where do I begin? I think this is where I'll start. I um, I I used to be a doula. Um, a doula and childbirth educator, and I went to a conference. Oh, my goodness. When my daughter was two weeks old, I took her to a conference. Wow. Yeah. It was a birthing conference. And I heard, um, I heard from this phenomenal black woman. She's a black, British-trained midwife that's been here for 30 years. Wow. Um, her name is Jenny Joseph. She's a grand midwife. We honor her. Wow. And uh, it is in that moment where I learned of the statistics for the first time amongst black women and black babies. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it gutted me. Like, it was like somebody punched me in the stomach. And then I realized that I got into birth work for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I thought that I would be serving women, giving birth at home, you know, just, it things. was just fun and wonderful and beautiful. Um, but when I realized that my sisters are dying, our babies are dying, and the stats just keep rising, it's been steady for years. Um, that's when I knew I needed to advocate for women differently. Mm -hmm. And so I am actually, I have a history being involved in pro-life work and the pro-life movement. Mm -hmm. I do. I have a, a rich history of that. And it started off okay. Um, you know, I believe that all life is valuable from womb to tomb, all of it, all you know? Right. Yeah. And I still hold that firm belief. However, for, for years, I noticed the tokenization um, once I became more anti-racist, yep. once I started advocating for black women differently, yep. um, I, I began to be received differently. Yeah. And um, I remember being tokenized pretty badly from a conservative news site in D.C., and they omitted all of the things that I said about justice work, everything that I had to say about anti-racism and systemic racism. And it's in that moment where I was like, yeah, I got to do this different. Like, this is not, nope, I, I don't want anything to do with this. This is not pro-life work, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but, you know, going back to that time at the conference, that's where the seed was planted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where the seed was planted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it took another year for Abide to become a name, you know. It started off as a hashtag, and then it started to grow and develop. And what year was that? Oh, my goodness. I believe that was in 20, 2016. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, 2016. 20, no, that was... When, the seed was planted in 2014. Wow. Um the idea of even potentially having anything that centered black women, a birth center or anything, that idea was in 2016. Okay. And then Abide became a hashtag in 2017. That's when the seed that was planted started to, to grow mm -hmm. and started to mm -hmm. become little seedlings, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And 2018, it became a little, a little flower, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, we got our name, our, our domain name, our website up and running. Mm. And then it was in 2019 where the trajectory, it was when 2018, we were tiptoeing around it. We were um, code switching and oh, yeah. just yeah, being yeah. really delicate with our words about Absolutely. what we were doing. 
you know, Absolutely. avoid the R word, racism, mm-hmm. avoid talking about systemic structures, but but center black women, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it was when 2019 where the lid was lifted. Mm-hmm. It was, I was pregnant, racial trauma was running amok mm-hmm. in the church, in my life, mm-hmm. in the how we were running the organization. Absolutely. And the entire, the entirety of what we were doing got flipped because um, I then realized that we needed to have the freedom to be unapologetic about what we're doing as an organization mm-hmm. while also maintaining the that uh, consistency in valuing life from womb to tomb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so far, there has been such beauty, growth in that freedom. Yeah. We've been able to thrive Absolutely. as an organization. Mm-hmm. You created a table. Exactly. On your terms mm-hmm. and unapologetically it's beautiful. Tell me about when you walk through these doors and what your everyday work looks like. So you walk through these doors and, you know, you punch the code in, you come in, what time in the morning and what a day looks like. And some of the stories of women that you served and the difference that you know that you're making, like that God has placed you here for this reason. Tell me about that. Oh, man. I love the work I do. I love coming to this space. I do. I love it. I love my team. We have a very small team. Um, There's four of us that come here Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from 10 to 6. Mm -hmm. Clinic days are Tuesday, Thursday. But when we walk in the door, it is like we're we're able to breathe. We People that come through our door, whether they're just coming to visit, whether they're a client or anything, most of the time, more often than not, they come in and they're like, oh, they're able to like release and they want to sit down and they just want to like chat, you know, and just decompress. It's a safe space. It's a safe, it is a safe space. Mm -hmm. And it, the environment that we've created here is is intentional. Mm -hmm. When you walked in initially, the lights were dim. Usually we don't have these fluorescent, I guess these, what it's called, these fluorescent lights on. Mm -hmm. Um, We have it dim, we have it warm, we have Mm -hmm. essential oils going. Mm -hmm. Um, We have music. It can be, we can be playing Erica Badu. We can be, you know, playing Lauryn Hill. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) we have just good, a good vibe going in our space. Yeah. And, um, And so, yeah, I would say that when people come in and they say that, I can breathe, I can rest, I feel restored, you know, when they come in. That's the biggest impact. But I will say, too, that we've created not only a culture for um, the people that walk through the doors, the moms that we serve, but we've created a culture um, of there's the three R's that we live by, and that's rest, resist, restore. Amen. You know, we don't believe we're we're actively resisting grind culture. Mm. You know, and so thirty-two hours—that's full time for us. Yeah, you absolutely. know that thirty-two. We firmly believe in thirty-two hour work week. That. You know, we um, we're so small that we don't really have like healthcare benefits, like those big packages that big organizations have. Because yeah. so we're nonprofit, a tiny nonprofit, and so we've allocated funding to help support um, our staff for healthcare reimbursements. Um, and also education. Yeah. 
you know, we help support our staff with, ed, you know, continuing education that can not only benefit them and help with their do- growth and development, but it also pours back into the organization. I love that. You know, and child care. Yeah. You know, we help with child care. I love so, that. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. powerful. <laughs> I love that. Well, and let's talk about resisting grind culture mm-hmm. because historically for black women, work, like that's what we came here to this country for was toil, labor, um, unbearable conditions mm-hmm. um, that have created generations of trauma that we are still like peeling back the layers of. And just how black women, how we see ourselves and how we don't uh, even, like we talk about like pain levels of black women not being acknowledged in the healthcare profession or by other people and that they think, that people think that we have a higher tolerance for pain, Mm -hmm. that we have um, a higher tolerance, like a capacity to work, that we can do more, 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 more. And all of that is rooted in enslavement and oppression what does it look like where, you know, because that's the thing, white women get to have fragility, they get to have rest, they get to be seen as fragile. Mm-hmm. And black women, as Zora Neale Hurston put put it so powerfully, we are the mules of mm-hmm. society. What does it look like to even, for black women that walk in here, and I, I can imagine the postpartum depression and just the anxiety of giving birth and... What does it look like to re- help black women to reverse the mindset and the guilt and the shame? You're, you're, you, you, you are doing something that's so countercultural with 32 hours of work yeah. week, a 32 hour work week um, as a mother with a husband and four children. And so like right off the bat, you're creating this culture. Um, but what does it look like to mirror that for black women that walk through and even just kind of help them to reverse that mindset that has just kind of been dumped on us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's been dumped on us, but it's also like in our DNA. Like it's it's the the weathering, you know? It's in our DNA. And so we have to like actively... Yeah. Um, re- resist Absolutely. the culture that we've been ingrained to operate in. Absolutely. You know, it's hard yeah, because yeah. it is c- countercultural. Absolutely. Oftentimes my team is like, wait, what? What? Like we're having to stop and say, okay, say no. You know, okay, you can go home. Don't work yourself. Don't work death. yourself. You're sick, stay home. Right. You know, Absolutely. unlimited sick days. I we, love that. We have unlimited sick days. Wow. Like it's it's no longer sacrificing your body for you know at the end of the day it's about valuing people over policy, and Dallas historically this this city was built for business, it was built for business it wasn't built for the thriving of people, you know it was it's a consumerism consumeristic capitalistic city, you know, black people enslaved people, freed people built this city. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I think I think getting to the point where we are intentional about our time and how we spend our time and being intentional about rest is what gives us it it gives us our freedom yeah. back. It it, it 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 Rest resistance yeah. produces restoration. Yeah. 
Amen. And we want a restored community. We want we want to re, we want a restored restored families. We want a restored bodies, restored minds, res, restored spirits. Like mm-hmm. it's holistic, you know. Yeah. And we think about the whole. And so, how does it impact our people that walk through the door? Like the hope is that they're just able to see like um, rested people mm-hmm. when they walk through our space. My hope is that other organizations can witness what we're doing mm-hmm. and put our policies or the way that we operate into their, you know, into how they operate. One, This is one thing, um, stepping into this role as a founder and ED, I didn't realize the power that I had until I had it. Yeah. And there is a tremendous amount of power you have when you are the one creating the system. Yeah. And th- and what I tell people all the time is that when you step into this role, you have the power to create the systems in which you choose to operate in. Mm. And I think for so long, we have been conditioned to grind. Yeah. We have been conditioned. This is just what we do. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? This doesn't work and it's not healthy. Mm. It's not healthy. It's not restorative. Right. And it's trauma to your body. It is. So when we think about the disparities like that have that are created, that the the, the disparities that contribute to uh, black female bodily trauma, that creates the statistics where, you know, the infant mortality rate and black women dying, regardless of socioeconomic status. Yes. Like, in fact, it 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 goes up higher exactly. the, the more educated you are. Exactly. And so this concept of rest and giving yourself permission to breathe and be free in a world that doesn't want you to, you know, that doesn't afford us many freedoms. It's really a powerful idea. Like, it's a powerful concept. And to model that from even with your workers, I think about how you're giving cheerfully and you're not doing it out of compulsion or... Like you're creating, you're making sure that your headspace, your mind is, is with a heart of service and you're caring for yourself first to make sure that, you know, when people walk through the doors, they're not feeling your stress. Because so many resources, like, like I think about um, women resource centers that are, you know, churches like manage or different organizations manage. You do feel that when you walk through the door, like, mm-hmm. okay, they got it. We got to serve one more person mm-hmm. that we don't have room for, and it 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 really it shapes your experience. A lot of women will not step into those spaces because they don't feel welcome, and so I love that. I love that. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and um, I want to talk about what do I want to talk about? Let me see. I want to talk about. Um, I don't know the words I have for it. I want to talk about how what you're doing compares to what the reason why we need abide. You know what I'm saying? I want to talk a little bit more about that, like why this is necessary. Oh, yeah. It's necessary. And um, I think a lot of people are sleeping on... um, the fact that black women have been doing this work 
Mm-hmm. For years, wow. there are black-led organizations all across the country, not mm-hmm. quite like Abide, mm-hmm. but they are doing similar work, mm-hmm. and people are just sleeping on them. The philanthropic world does not support black-led organizations. They especially don't, especially black female ones. Mm-hmm. Especially black female ones. Yeah. Um, the reason why we exist and why it's necessary to have a a clinic such as ours or an organization such as ours is because we center black women. We center our experiences. We um, come, affla- come from a place of cultural humility. Mm-hmm. Um, we address the real issues, mm-hmm. which is racism in healthcare, biases in health in healthcare that kill black women. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've said this several times and I'll say it again, that as long as whiteness is centered, yeah. black women will continue to die. Yep. And so with Abide, since we center black women's lived experiences, black, indigenous, and people of color, we center their experiences, um, it it reduces that. It, re- mm. you know, it doesn't eliminate the Absolutely. disparities. Nothing Absolutely. will eliminate the disparities, but it does reduce it. Um, seeing it, studies have shown that, uh, you know, people receive better care from practitioners who look like them. They're received well. They yeah. can um, relate. It, yeah. You know, yeah. it's the re- the relatability. Does it eliminate it? No, but it definitely improves it. Yeah. And so if we know this, then why aren't we doing it? Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And so, um, you know, when I look around, when I go into any OB or any birth center or whatever, when I look around, I'm not seeing a bunch of images of black women and black babies mm-hmm. and black families and Latina Latinx families and all that. I'm not seeing that. Yeah. And all of that influences how we are... Um, you know, the perception that we receive when we walk into those spaces. Yeah. Like, am I am I centered? Do they really care about us? Yeah. You know? And so um, I think for, for so long we've been talking about these, these disparities. We've been talking about the issues. Um, but I recognized here in, in South Dallas that we need to commit to action. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting that you say... Black people, because I've said that before, black people, we've been doing, we've been tending to our tears this whole time. Yeah. It's just that the resources are often limited. Um, and the way things are set up, they press so so hard against us that a lot of times we, can, we crumble. I mean, you know, beneath all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just made me think of my great-grandmother who was a midwife before they decided in midwifery in America came from black women birthing enslaved women's babies um, because no doctor cared to tend to us. Um, And so amongst enslaved women, we were helping to birth the babies and became experts. My great-grandmother was a midwife. But then um, I'm sure you're familiar with the documentary where the white male doctors went to the South and they studied black women midwives, uneducated, you know, black women midwives. And my my great-grandmother, they call her the witch doctor because she was like the practitioner of the community. She had natural healing. She was Native American and, and black. 
And so she birthed, she did all the things, but they came and they studied them and took everything gleaned like these, these medical doctors with these high degrees gleaned all the information from them and then flipped the script and ridiculed and mocked them. And then required midwifery to require it. They made midwifery to require a license. So that excluded generations like a whole slew of black women who had been doing it oftentimes with no payment, just serving their community. Um, And now you have to have a license to be a midwife. It's like, why did you need to go there to learn from them? If, you know, it's just ridiculous. It's the history of pillaging. Exactly. And that's exactly. Midwifery today is completely appropriated. Completely. It is completely appropriated. Yeah. Birthing centers. A lot. Because that was our, that's what we did. That was. Because there was no hospital. Right. There was nowhere to go. You, you had, like, I feel that there's so much that's appropriated from the black experience. Quilt making, um, you know, essential oils and natural products, like, um, you know, the mm, mag- the whole, yeah, barbecue, the whole Magnolia deal, yeah. it just, you know, home goods. It's like, that's what we did because it wasn't else, nothing else to do. And now... Just like marijuana. Yeah. Like, now, everybody gets to make money off of it. Everybody gets to monetize it, but black folks. Right. My great-grandmother was not rich. Mm-hmm. She, you know what I'm saying? She got, she, there was no monetization for her for all these things that she, all these these natural healing and mm-hmm. all, mid, midwifery and service. There was nothing. Nothing. And now, I, I sit back and watch people buy this stuff in droves. Yeah. And 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 further their culture's generational wealth, while we continue to pay the costs. Yeah, and and it, and, it, and, it, and the cost is black lives. Literally, it's literally black lives. And you know, we, you say that you know the grand midwives. You know, they were catching all enslaved women's babies. They were catching everybody's babies. Exactly. They were catching, yes. Yeah, they were catching everyone's babies. Birthing white babies. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, and black women were nursing white babies. Yes. At the expense of, of our their own, own yes. children. Yes. yes. And so there's, there, there's, there's so much. Like, I don't know if everyone knows this, but today um, in midwifery, only 2% of midwives are black. Hmm. When it, it, be, it was completely swapped. You, we were we were we the originators. Were the yeah, we were the midwives, and yeah. only two percent. And there are so many barriers that exist today that prevents um, black women from becoming Absolutely. midwives. It's insane yeah. the barriers. Yeah. And then when it comes to birth centers, only five percent. This is based from the um, research done by Birth Center Equity, but only five percent of birth centers are owned and operated by uh, black, indigenous, and people of color. Only 5%. Wow. So uh, there's like over 300 birth centers across the country and only 5%. And it's become you know? like this whole like industry. Oh, yes. That everyone can, oh, we're having our baby at a birthing center. Right. It's like, oh, yeah? Yeah. Like, you know? Right. It's, I mean, it's just crazy. Back then, like you were saying, like there were actual campaigns with pictures of you know, granny midwives, black midwives saying, do you want your, do you want um, to 
this person to help you with your baby. Right. You know, they were trying to vilify mm-hmm. our ancestors after that were doing pulling this. the resources after, after pulling, learning after learning and yes. yes. Absolutely. And then they medicalized it and they sent it into the hospital. And we're right now big industry. And, yeah, big industry. Yeah. Full of racist practices. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And then the schools that were prerequisites for the certifications didn't accept black people. Yeah. So there's no way for right. these black midwives who had all this experience to even go through the process mm-hmm. because of the racist barriers that were there. Yes. Absolutely. And that's why to this day, we just recently lost uh, one of our grands, one of our grand midwives. She's the only black midwife in Houston. We just lost her a few days ago. Wow. And that's why the black birth world, we grieve, we mourn mm-hmm. when we lose our grands, you know, mm-hmm. those that have been practicing midwifery for so long and where, who we were dependent upon to, like, learn this craft, you know, mm-hmm. to pass on from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And so right now, the disparities that, we, that exist amongst midwifery, we have tons of black students that don't have very many black preceptors. And then when they walk into these spaces with white women teaching them how to become midwives, they're exposed to traumatic experiences. Absolutely. You know? And so it's just like trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. Yes. While we're also trying to heal ourselves. Absolutely. Like it's just like it's a constant. It's a it's it's a constant struggle. It's powerful. Yeah. But then just getting into a little bit of the effects of that, that um, from just some stuff that I've kind of read or learned as I'm trying to process health disparities and where they come from and the significance of them is um, that if the black community doesn't have black practitioners, then there's kind of two sides to the problems that that causes, is that for patients, they are oftentimes slower to get the help that they need because they have experienced the trauma of racism from the healthcare system. And so then they're, uh, like for cancer, for instance, most black patients will be diagnosed later. And studies have shown that black and white patients who receive the same treatment at the same point with cancer will have the same outcomes. But black patients are generally diagnosed later. And part of that is because their own hesitance of going to white doctors who are oftentimes dismissive of them. And then on the practitioner side, the white doctors oftentimes, uh, just because they're from a different kind of cultural background, um, even if they're not deliberately racist, they will oftentimes, they'll still be just less comfortable in the conversation, Mm -hmm. which will cause them to oftentimes uh, just meet with black patients less long. Like studies have found that white doctors, if they're not from the same cultural background, just in, uh, in any kind of doctor-patient relationship, they'll be, they're less likely to engage in further conversation that oftentimes can help inform the diagnosis or can help inform uh, the, the relationship. It can build more trust so that the black patient um, feels comfortable to continue coming. And so it causes this breakdown that will just, get, it, it widens uh, the disparities that we see between black and white patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the distrust amongst black people and white doctors yeah. is legitimate. Absolutely. When we had uh, federally sanctioned discrimination, federally sanctioned um, experimentation on black bodies, 
you know, and I mean, even now with forced sterilizations in prisons in California, like this stuff is happening right now. You know, historically speaking, you know, black women were used as we were black women were bred, you know, and so that's forced childbirth. That's what that really was. It was forced childbirth. And then black women weren't even able to really raise their own children. Black families were stripped apart in that, Mm -hmm. you know. And so we just we have this history of experimentation and using the black body for political power and gain and economic. It it, it, honestly, the black body is what built the economics in this country. Yeah. You know, and Mm so all of that that you said is true and it contributes to it. I was just the other day, it's just slightly related. I mean, it's not directly, but it is. But there is, um, there's media bias. We're all influenced by biases. Mm-hmm. We all, we all are. Absolutely. Racism hurts everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But I was just looking up, in our, in our efforts to build um, imagery for our capital campaign, I was looking for an image of black hands pulling up r- weeds out of the ground, pulling, pulling weeds out of the ground. And mm-hmm. when I think of weeds, I think of the weeds of systemic injustice. Mm-hmm. I think the weeds getting to the root mm-hmm. And trying to understand what is going on in our country, what has produced the strange fruit that we're seeing in these black bodies dying, you know? And I was Google searching it, that specifically, weeds being pulled out of the ground. And I just saw, yeah, lots of weeds being pulled out of ground by white hands or very light, complected hands. And so I put black hands pulling weeds out of the ground. And I scroll and I scroll, and the first thing I see are black, dark brown hands rolling a blunt. Wow. That's the first image I see. And so it's something simple as that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, just looking that up affects the psyche, affects our perception of how we view black bodies. Then how in the world do we view them in the medical establishment? Absolutely. Mm Absolutely. Wow. Well, and so I want to talk about a little a little bit about also the black men, the men of the fathers that you guys, because you can't be serving black women without impacting the family, you know, mm-hmm. the whole family structure. So you're you're helping black women and their children. But let's talk about a little bit about the men that come with mothers because there's this there's this idea that yeah there there is a significant um percentage there are there there's a significant percentage of single mothers but there are a lot of black families there are a lot of nuclear black families so talk about that yeah absolutely um i'll tell you this one i don't work directly with the the clients but our clinic director was telling me how um, there was this father and he was doing all the calling around. He was calling around mm-hmm. to find a place where his girlfriend could mm-hmm. have an ultrasound and mm-hmm. be seen and whatnot. And he's the one that actually set the appointment for mm-hmm. her to come. And they, they come and they've been seen and cared for by us and established care with us. But um, it is very important 
for us at Abide to honor the family. Mm-hmm. And that is honoring the single mother, that's honoring the nuclear um, black family and mm-hmm. uh, Latinx families, mm-hmm. um, and honoring family and whatever family dynamic, whatever that means. Yeah. If that means that, you know, it's the the pregnant person and their mother, you know, coming Absolutely. in or their grandmother coming in, then we do that. But I think that's what sets us apart a bit mm-hmm. is that we don't just see to women. the women and the child. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about how do we help um, the entirety of the family, yeah. you know? And so one of the things... Um, that we decided to do. We partner with this organization called Delighted to Doula. And all of our clients have an opportunity, if they choose to, be served by a postpartum doula. Postpartum doulas are crucial. Yes. Because it is like 45 days after um, a person gives birth up to a year where they're at risk. Like, that's where lives are lost. It's not necessarily like in the hospital. It's when they come home. Absolutely. It's when they don't have help. Yep. It's when... You know, they have to go back to work or their partner has to go back to work. It's so much, you know. And so our postpartum doulas help in help the entirety of the family, even the prenatal appointments. You have other children. Yeah. You know, okay, we're going to measure the baby and we get those get those toddlers or those little people's hands on that belly and get them fully immersed into this process because it is a fam. This is a family affair. I love it. You know, I love it. So go ahead. Uh, So we always ask, what would you say if like, so we have this audience of uh, say like Mm 15,000 white people who are listening, Um, a largely sympathetic audience what would you say to them? Like, what is their part in this? How can they support the work that you're doing? Yes. Um, what would your kind of message be to the the largely white audience or the white part, part of the audience that's listening? Absolutely. So, oh, what can you do? What can you do to move forward to help support Abide yeah. and the work that we're doing here? I would say that supporting us financially Like, number one, um, oftentimes people want to come and provide their resources, but we're doing the work. We have staff, Mm -hmm. but we are a nonprofit organization that is dependent upon individual donations, Mm -hmm. recurring donors, those who want to see us expand our services and, you know, provide the necessary resources Mm -hmm. to the community of South Dallas. And right now we are Easy Access Clinic. But we are in the process of becoming an accredited easy access clinic with the JJ Way, the first in Texas. Um, And then we're on the cusp of launching our capital campaign on Mother's Day to purchase land, a home for our birth center. Mm -hmm. It's it's a natural progression to provide the ease of access to care here. We act as as sort of a triage for families in need of care. All of our services are free. It's a donation-based clinic, mm. and that's part of our that's part of our um, our mission is to ease the access. Yeah, absolutely. you know, to cut through the red tape. If you're undocumented, if you are in between health insurance, if you have no insurance, if you have no money, you know, mm. 
And even if you do have all the money in the world, you know, we want our client base to know that they're coming here and they're getting culturally relevant care, culturally sensitive care, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that it's safe. Mm -hmm. And so in order for us to continue this work, we need individual donors. We need people to give, whether that's $5 to $50, $500 a month, so that we can keep this going. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our capital campaign, like I said, it's launching on Mother's Day. And we have a goal of raising $1 million. I believe we will raise a million, a million dollars in a year so that we can purchase not only a birthing center, but it's Abide Birth and Collective Care Center. We believe that in order for us to heal, that we have to do it collectively. Yeah. And the vision is for us to have Four birthing suites, which will be named after four black women that people haven't really heard of. You know, that's part of us restoring our history. Yes. You know, and we will have on-site student housing to help with the cost of those that are pursuing midwifery so that they don't have to worry about overhead, so that they can pursue their studies to become a midwife and to commit to lowering these Mm -hmm. death rates. These, you know, so many people say... What about the baby? What about the baby? What about the baby? Well, what about the mother who's afraid she won't survive birth? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. We have to provide a safe environment for the mother. Yeah. And so there's that, you know, we want to provide. Um, when I say land, we're, we were looking at a place that had six acres. And we want to have cottages, cottages eventually on the land where people can seek restoration after they have a baby mm-hmm. and stay for a few days and be helped mm-hmm. by a postpartum doula. And to actually recover mm-hmm. instead of immediately having to go home, you know, to yeah. may, to what may be a not so safe environment or just or a, a routine that they're not quite ready for. Exactly. You know, and then also I have found restoration in nature. Absolutely. I believe that being around the things that God created <laughs> Help, helps to restore us. And so my hope is that families, fathers, auntie, aunties, uncles, cousins can come to this space and find healing. It is about rest, resist, mm-hmm. restoration. So yes, we just need your financial support. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, on what you're saying there, uh, just a couple of studies that show that uh, the same thing. There's a study that showed that in U.S. hospitals, black patients are less likely to receive more costly treatments or to be referred for more costly treatments. Other studies have shown that black people are less likely to be referred for transplants or to be informed about the availability of transplants, partially because hospitals and doctors uh, are concerned about the, the wealth or there's just this stereotype that black people don't have as much insurance or don't have as much wealth, so they're less likely to be referred for uh, interventions that are more costly. Yeah. Um, another study showed that they're more likely to receive amputations because an amputation is just a cheaper alternative to the actual hard work of restorative care uh, for like a limb that has been injured. Um, and I mean, I could I could go on with others, but uh, with with cancer treatment, I'll just say one more. With cancer treatment, black patients are uh, not only, like I said earlier, they're uh, oftentimes the cancer is found later because of uh, problems with the process getting them into care, but then they're less likely to be referred for newer treatments uh, that are oftentimes more expensive. 
Um, and yeah, so it's just that perception by doctors, that implicit bias that comes from media, comes from the flat fact that, uh, I mean, as we've talked about before on one of our earlier episodes that uh, black people in the media are, I think, fourfold overrepresented in media as being criminal and 50% overrepresented as, uh, in poverty. So if the media news wants a B-roll footage of a poor person, it's 50% more likely than reality to use a black person to represent poverty because the media wants an image to represent poverty. They're going to Google it. They're going to you know, find an image. And, and there's this implicit bias where they're more likely to pick an image of a black person to represent poverty. And it doesn't actually match the reality in America, even as tilted as that reality already is from mm-hmm. systemic racism and this history of injustice. The media will then even exaggerate it further. Um, and it feeds these stereotypes. And then doctors and all of us, everyone, white and black doctors, yep. are affected by that saturation in that media that represents black people as poor and are less likely then to propose interventions that are, are more costly. And then just one one final thought or note is that on the organizational level then, there's also just less support for black-led organizations. And that's another aspect that makes it even worse is that black people who see that the, the people who are actually seeing these problems mm-hmm. are the ones who are least empowered to get in there and fix mm-hmm. it. And so that's part of why I think it's so important for white people to set aside their own view of reality, that their own kind of, um, you know, not to say that white people don't have a true view of reality, but they have a perspective. And reality is much more big and complex. And white people don't generally see into the reality that people who they're socially and culturally distant from are living. Mm -hmm. And if white people try to fix everything without empowering the people who are actually living through these injustices and living through and seeing these dynamics and actually can then propose solutions much better because they're closer to those realities, then then those realities don't get better. And, Mm -hmm. And so white people, I think it just shows how much they need to be supporting organizations that are black-led and are uh, like dealing with these realities uh, on the ground. So we, uh, as a podcast, we have uh, more than 50 patrons who support us. And every 10 episodes, we pull that money together and give it to a black-led cause or organization. Um, so we've talked and want to uh, like make you and abide the next cause that we support with that money. So, um, so we... Uh, we also just want to invite our audience as you guys are listening and processing all this uh, to even whether you're a patron or not to even uh, we're going to put in the show notes a link to abide so that you can find out more and consider giving and supporting the the capital campaign that you guys are doing thank you so much this really means it means the world to me it really does it means the world to us what you're doing is just so valuable and um yeah, it's otherworldly, unfortunately. But I'm just so I'm I'm so blessed to just even hear this story because I keep the word that just stands out is redemption. There's just a redemption of like us owning our process and being able to enjoy pregnancy in a way that's not afforded to us and enjoy motherhood in the way sometimes it's not afforded or postpartum postpartum um, that process in having the support and just kind of, even as I imagine the cottages, I mean, I think about 
slave cabins and just the brutal um, ways in which like black women had had become to, it's almost like pregnancy and childbirth was a curse in a way. And so how that's being taken back just through the work that you're doing and the work that people are doing all over the country to take back um, this God-given, this gift and claim it for ourselves and uplift it and own it. So we are so grateful to be able to interview you and come and visit and just be in this space. And we just pray God's blessings upon you and abide. Um, And we're just believing for that $1 million and just ongoing, just an outpouring of support. And we love you. Thank you. you. Thank you, sister. I love you so much. Same. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. We'll leave you with this quote from Mary Church Terrell. The chasm between the principles upon which this government was founded and those which are daily practiced under the protection of the flag yawns so wide and deep. Thank you.